Okay, well, welcome back, everybody. This is, uh, what, the fourth time is the charm? And uh, I apologize. We had some major audio issues, and I don't know why. I, everything checked out. I always double-check my audio sources. Everything said we were on the first time we did the show, and there was no audio. Camera, but no audio. So hopefully this time we've got audio. I'm doing a do-over for tonight for you guys. Um, we know a lot of you aren't going to be available to listen this late at night, but I apologize. You can catch it tomorrow. Anyway, welcome to the show. My name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host, hopefully, for the next hour. I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. We're 45 strong up and down the state, which means if you have a paranormal need or you think you have a paranormal need, we can get to you. It might take us a while, but uh, we will get to you. And in the, in the case that we can't get to you right away, we do have uh, mediums on staff who can assist with that and that they'll call you and talk to you about what may or may not be going on. And in most cases, they can calm the, the stuff down for, for you until, until we can get out there. All right. You can find us on Facebook under California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team, California Haunts, um, California Haunts Ghostly Events, uh, Sacramento Sears. You can find us at the Sacramento Sears, S-E-E-R-S. -E and you can also find us on Instagram under Ghosty Gal, all lowercase. In addition, you can find us over on TikTok which for our broadcasting right now, you can find us over on TikTok under Cal Haunts, California Haunts over at Twitch and California Haunts at TikTok. So there's all kinds of ways, there's all kinds of ways to get a hold of us. So welcome, welcome, welcome. This is what I think the fourth try to get this thing out. This is the charm, I guess. Uh, Mercury retrograde must be doing this Mercury retrograde thing, right? Uh, so here we are. And I'm okay. So we have sound. If that's Jerry, we have sound. Let's see. Who we got? Okay. So, yeah, I just got confirmation that we have sound this time. <laughs> I don't know. Like I said, I double-checked all the settings going in the first time, and everything looked like, like it does now, and that was it, right? So, that being said, we're going to get right into this. Uh, we finished off our, our Christmas Traditions book last night, and uh, that's really a cool book. In fact, I'm going to go back to the Gutenberg Library and find uh, some more ghost stories. And I, I happened to go through there with Nancy one night. And found quite a bit of ghost stories. So there's a lot to pull from there. So I'm really excited about that. And so I'm going to be doing that. In the meantime, we've still got more of Sylvia Schultz's book to read. And it's kind of nice to be able to do that. There's 160 pages left in this book. And so I'm trying to bring those pages to you for you know for reading. So I uh, had that show at the usual time at 6.30 p.m. Pacific tonight. And obviously there were some, there were some audio problems where you couldn't hear me. Maybe that's a good thing. Some people might think it's a good thing. So anyway, I decided to do a do-over for you guys. And so I know I know not all of you are going to be seeing this because some of you have to go to work tomorrow morning and things like that. But uh, hopefully the people that are online right now will see this and, and, and come on in and check us out. Uh, if you like what you see, be sure to do what Jerry did and hit that thumbs up button or hit the smiley button or hit the heart button. Really appreciate that. And uh, if you haven't done so already, uh, hit that follow button. Uh, join us uh, because that helps us with the FYP on Facebook and puts us out to more people. Uh, same thing with, with YouTube. If you're over on YouTube and you're watching from YouTube, hit those thumbs up, smiley faces and whatnot. And hit that subscribe button if you haven't done so, uh, if you like what you see. Because that also puts us the FY, uh, FYP over at YouTube and spreads us out to more people. I really appreciate Again, I really appreciate that. All right, so let's get into this. Uh, we're gonna read for. I'm gonna read for about an hour. See, it's almost nine thirty, so we'll be here till ten thirty. I'm gonna read for about an hour, and then I'll let you guys go. 
But I, I think you'll find this interesting. Uh, you know, all these stories are, so, some are spookier than others. So uh, just bear with us. Um, most of these are ghost stories that, that I'm going to be reading tonight, which are fun. And they all take, the, the key with this book is it not only takes place at Christmas, is it takes place during the winter. So these are all like wintertime stories that you can tell your, tell your kids around the fire or what the, what the, if the power goes out or something during a storm. So that's what makes it so fun. So uh, grab your hot cocoa, grab your popcorn, grab grab your fuzzies for your feet, lay down, you know, lay down on the couch or sit on the couch, uh, get, grab a blanket on the floor, do whatever, dim those lights, sit in front of the fire, and we're going to tell some ghost stories. So here we go. Okay. Merry Christmas from the Bell Witch. It's been 200 years since the Bell family of Tennessee was tormented by a mysterious entity known as the Bell Witch. Now, a lot of paranormal investigators have heard of the Bell Witch. But the events that unfolded between the years 1817 and 1821 have remained evergreen in American ghost lore. And they are some of the most amazing tales in Tennessee history. John Bell, a prosperous cotton farmer, was born in North Carolina in 1750. He, his wife Lucy, and their nine children moved to Robertson County, Tennessee in 1804. Bell purchased many acres of land along the Red River and set about improving it even more. He cleared fields, planted orchards, and built a home for his large family. He even built a one-room schoolhouse where his children and his neighbor's children could get an education. This being Tennessee in the early 19th century, John Bell's cotton plantation was worked by slaves. But Bell and his family were very devout, and Bell himself seemed to let his religious beliefs dictate his treatment of his slaves. He doesn't seem to have been a particularly harsh master. John Bell knelt to lead his family in prayers three times a day, and he opened his house as a gathering place for prayer meetings, Bible studies led by Lucy Bell, and other worship services. John Bell was socially and politically active as well. He dressed the part of a wealthy, influential businessman and landowner. When he went to town on business, he made an imposing figure in his tailored coat with silver buttons and his fashionable beaver hat. Nice. Bell made many speeches in support of political candidates whose values aligned with his, and he was known for personal integrity and wasn't afraid to speak up for his beliefs. John Bell was an upstanding citizen, a devout Christian, the benevolent head of a large family, a careful steward of his land and property, and a prosperous businessman. That's what made the events to come even more startling. One day in 1817, Bell was inspecting a cornfield when he saw a bizarre-looking animal crouched in the middle of a row of corn. The creature had the body of a dog but the head of a rabbit. Startled and horrified by the anomaly, Bell shot at it several times. He didn't hit it, but the strange animal vanished. After this encounter, odd things started to happen in the Bell home. At first, the activity was very subtle. Family members would hear tapping on the windows at night, and rats gnawing on the bedposts, or a sound like an animal scratching at the doors. Nothing could ever be found to account for the noises. Then the noises got violent. The Bell children would be woken from sleep by the sound of vicious dogfights in their rooms. Other times, they would hear the clank of heavy chains being dragged across the floor, or the racket of furniture being thrown around the room. The weird noises continued for a year. Then, suddenly, things got much worse. The poltergeist activity escalated from noise to physical attacks on the family. The entity started with pulling bedclothes off of the sleeping children. An overnight guest was woken 
by the covers sliding off of him. With a shout, he grabbed the covers, which were bunched up to look like a human form. He felt something solid under his hands and yelled in triumph, I have the ghost! The fire in the hearth was still burning, and the man jumped out of bed, still holding the bunched sheets in his fisted hands. He intended to throw the ghost, sheets, and all into the fire and get rid of the tormenting entity forever. But before he got to the fireplace, the room suddenly filled with an overpowering stench. The smell was bad enough that the man started to retch. Instinctively, he dropped the water sheets and ran out of the room for some fresh air. When he could breathe without heaving, he came back into the room. The nauseating stink was gone, but so was the ghost. Another time, John Bell's son Richard was rudely jerked from a sound sleep by something pulling his hair hard. It felt like the top of his scalp was tearing right off. He screamed in agony, and John and Lucy came running into the bedroom. Then an equally ear-splitting shriek came from another bedroom. Betsy, Richard's sister, was being attacked in the exact same way. <coughs> to add to the physical attacks, the entity hit up this repertoire of sounds. Replacing the animal scratchings and gnawings were a variety of noises that sounded almost human. Lip-smacking, throat-gulping, and an exquisitely horrifying choking gurgle that sounded like someone being slowly strangled. A family friend, James Johnson, wanted very much to help the Bells with their troubles. He started talking to the ghost, trying to get it to answer questions to explain its presence in the Bell home. At first, the only response he got was a faint, whistling noise. Over the next few days, the air became filled with a feeble whispering that grew in volume until, unmistakably, there was a voice. By now, it was clear that Betsy Bell was increasingly the focus of the enemy's attention, the entity's attention. The haunting was a great source of stress for her, even more so because at one point visitors to the home all but accused her of faking the voices using ventriloquism. John and Lucy called in a doctor to debunk this. The phantom voice spoke, and the doctor laid his hand on Betsy's throat. He swore he felt no vibrations from her vocal cords. This convinced him that Betsy was completely innocent of trickier games. <coughs> the Bell family and James Johnson peppered the ghost with questions, but the entity refused to give a straight answer. One day it claimed to be a Native American whose bones had been disturbed. Another day it said, I am a spirit who was once very happy, but has been disturbed, and now I am unhappy. This did nothing to narrow things down. The most specific answer the entity gave about its identity was that it was Kate Bat, a local woman accused of being a witch. But it wasn't Kate's ghost. Kate was very much alive at the time although she'd been driven out of the area by an angry mob sometime before. The voice became many voices, sometimes stumbling over each other in their clamor to be heard. The voices called themselves the family of Kate Bat, which the Bell family assumed meant that the witch had summoned a host of spirits in a dark ritual. With the arrival of multiple voices came multiple personalities. Although the family still returned to the entity of the witch, as the witch, not all these personalities were malevolent. The witch had its favorites. On one occasion, the entity saved the life of one of the Bell children. One of the boys was crawling through a cave near the house. He was navigating a narrow passage when he got stuck in some quicksand. The cave suddenly glowed with an unearthly light, and a disembodied voice shouted, I'll get you out. Something grabbed the boy's legs, he said later. It just felt like strong hands and pulled him to safety. It was Lucy Bell, John's wife, who was the witch's particular favorite. The ghost sat in on the Bible study groups Lucy led in the bell home. When the group decided to take a break, fruit would materialize out of thin air, falling into the laps of the stunned guests. 
Another time, Lucy was very ill and lay sick in bed. The witch cooed loose. Poor Luce, how do you feel now? Then in a show of affection, it gently showered Lucy's lap with hazelnuts. Well, Lucy pointed out that the nuts were still in their shells, and she had no way of cracking them. The entity shelled the nuts for her. But other members of the family were victimized by the witch. It seemed to focus much of its malevolence on Betsy Bell. It would pull her hair or slap her face. The attacks would come without warning. And Betsy soon became a shivering nervous wreck. Sixteen-year-old Betsy was engaged to be married, and the witch would have none of it. When Betsy's fiancé, Joshua Gardner, came to court her, the entity would fill the air with crude talk about the couple, embarrassing poor Betsy to tears. Sometimes, the entity took a gentler tactic. When Betsy lay in bed at night, she would often hear the phantom voice pleading, Please, Betsy Bell, don't have Joshua Gardner. Eventually, Betsy just gave up and broke off the engagement. The witch saved his most savage ire for John Bell. Early in the haunting, John had been plagued with a weird stiffness in his mouth. He said it felt like someone had jammed a stick in his mouth and was turning it sideways, forcing his jaws apart. Whatever was going on inside John's mouth caused his tongue to swell. He couldn't speak or eat for days at a time. His face would spasm and twitch embarrassingly. Lack of proper nutrition and the sheer strangeness of his suffering took its toll, and John began to fade. By December 1820, he was seriously ill. He was in bed for a week, suffering almost continual torment from the witch. After several days, John seemed to rally a bit, and he felt well enough to go outside for a walk in his garden with his son Richard. But the pair didn't get far. Moments after they stepped outside the house, John's head rocked back with the force of a blow to his face. Stunned, he sat down on a log to catch his breath. His face started convulsing, as if someone was squishing his face and pinching his cheeks without mercy. Then, to add insult to injury, John's shoes flew off. Richard scrambled to grab them and knelt at his father's feet to slip them back on. But every time Richard put the shoes back on, they would yank themselves off and go flying again. The ghost cackled with delighted malice. The old man sat in his garden with tears of frustration rolling down his face, crying like a kid being tormented by a schoolyard bully. On the morning of December 20th, John Bell fell into a coma. Thinking to rouse his father, John Jr., since he could rouse his father, John Jr. went to the cabinet to fetch the medicine the family doctor had prescribed. It was gone. In its place in the covered shelf was a strange flask, about one-third full of a dark, evil-looking syrup. In a panic, John Jr. sent a servant to fetch the doctor. The voice of the witch rose in a cackle, filling the room with the sound of its triumph. I put it there and gave old Jack a big dose of it last night while he was fast asleep. I guess that fixed him, the witch bragged. The doctor arrived and inspected the suspicious-looking liquid. He decided to test it on the family cat. The cat licked a little bit off a spoon. Then it leapt into the air, whirled around three times, and dropped to the floor stone dead. Instead of handing the mysterious flask over to the sheriff, as he should have done, the doctor poured the rest of the flask's dark contents on the fire, where it could do no more harm. By doing so, though, he destroyed any evidence that could have helped identify Bell's murderer. Had Bell been poisoned by someone very much of this world. But the harm was already done. The next morning, John Bell succumbed to the mysterious poison and slipped into death. The witch didn't even let the family hold John's funeral in peace. It interrupted the service with shrieks of glee and, crude, and a crude drinking song. Christmas in the Bell house was a somber affair that year, but the witch was ecstatic. On Christmas Day, the family was rudely awakened by the raucous voice of the witch, shouting curls in high volume and cackling ma 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 maniacally. 
The family hadn't planned any celebration, but they did decide to have a low-key exchange of presents. When they came downstairs, though, they found shredded wrapping paper all over the room. The presents were destroyed. Betsy Bell lived into her 80s. To the end of her life, she swore that the most horrendous episode of her life was the haunting, and that she would always remember 1820 as the year Satan stole my father and Christmas, and Jesus went with us. Next one is the murder of Thelma Todd. We have a little bit of water here. Karen Clark, thank you for the cup. Quote, I've known and respected your husband for many years, and what's good enough for him is good enough for me. End quote. Groucho Marx in Monkey Business. Hollywood. Bright lights, movie stars, fame so close you can taste it. The glamour of the movie business has lured many eager souls to California. Some hopefuls become stars, some stars become legends. And some stars burn brightly and then explode, victims of their own incandescence. Thelma Todd was born July 29, 1906, in Lawrence, Massachusetts. She was a bright little girl, a good student who had dreams of becoming a schoolteacher. After graduating high school in 1923, she enrolled at the Lowell Normal School to work towards a teaching degree. But life and Thelma's mother had other plans. Seeing Thelma's fresh blonde beauty, Mrs. Todd encouraged her daughter to start entering beauty contests. Thelma did well in local pageants and even won. She won Miss Massachusetts in 1925. The prestigious win sent her onto the Miss America pageant. She didn't win, but there were talent scouts in the audience who were looking for fresh new faces for the young film industry. Thelma was invited to seek her fortune in Hollywood, which was just what Mrs. Todd had wanted all along. Thelma proved to be a natural on the screen. The 1920s were a heady time for the film industry. Hollywood was making the transition from silent movies to talkies. Some actors and actresses just couldn't make the leap, mostly because their voices didn't match their appearance. If you watch some of those films, it's hilarious. Thelma started her career in silent movies and played numerous supporting roles that showcased her beauty but gave her little chance to act. That changed with the coming of sound to movies. Thelma blossomed into the talkies. Thelma's voice, a bright, clear soprano, was just a trace of a northeastern lilt. Matched her image beautifully. She had enough of a New England accent to sound aristocratic without coming off as snobby. Acting roles poured in for Thelma. In the Chicago Tribune article written in 1991, she was described as a cross between Goldie Hawn and Farrah Fawcett, only more popular. She played all kinds of roles, including parts in dramas and gothic horror films. But it was as a comedic actress that Thelma really shone. She made 115 pictures between 1926 and 1935. Wow. Producer Hal Roach paired her with Laurel and Hardy and led her to other studios where she made films of Buster Keaton and the Marx Brothers, including Horse Feathers and Monkey Business. Stan Laurel was a, a particular friend of Thelma's, and he often requested that she be cast as the leading lady in his films. Thelma picked up a couple of nicknames in the business. She was known as Hot Toddy or the Ice Cream Blonde. But Thelma's life wasn't all ice cream and Billy laughs. She married Pat DeSico in 1932 and divorced him in 1934. Even before that, in 1931, she had started an affair with director Roland West. Soon, she and West were living together, sharing a house with West's ex-wife. That should be interesting. The phrase, it's complicated, is particularly apt here. And that wasn't the worst of it. When Thelma started working with Hal Roach, the producer made her sign a contract 
that included something he laughingly called the potato claws. But it was no laughing matter. The potato claws said that if Thelma gained over five pounds, she'd be fired. This had the potential to seriously damage Thelma's career. Sucked into the lavish Hollywood lifestyle, Thelma went to a lot of parties and did a lot of drinking, filling up on empty calories. Her mother, worried that Thelma would jeopardize her meal ticket, helpfully introduced her daughter to diet pills. With her movie earnings, Thelma bought a restaurant in Los Angeles' neighborhood Pacific Palisades. Tourists, as well as Hollywood royalty, flocked to the popular restaurant called Thelma Todd's Sidewalk Cafe. The second floor of the building was a nightclub called Joya's. And the third floor, well, the third floor was an issue. The riches of Los Angeles had attracted the attention of the mafia. The mobster, Lucky Luciano, had dreams of setting up an empire of prostitution, gambling, and extortion in L.A. He introduced himself to Thelma and started to make himself indispensable to the young actress. He got her hooked on potent amphetamines. That kept the weight off better than her prescription diet pills. Thelma was intrigued by the air of rakish danger Lucky Luciano represented. Mobsters were rich, with their own brand of glamour. But even though she herself was a movie star, there was still a part of Thelma that tried to keep her New England school teacher innocence. Thelma Todd's sidewalk cafe and Hoyas, Joyous were intensely important to the young star. The restaurant and club were the first things Thelma owned that were really truly hers, and they were wildly successful. Visiting her cafe in the 30s was like dining at Spago's today. It was a place to see and be seen. Thelma was protective of her investments. So when Lucky Luciano <coughs> approached Thelma with a proposition he wanted that he wanted to rent the third floor of her building above Hoyas and turn it into a gambling parlor, Thelma was appalled. She didn't care that Luciano was one of the biggest names in gangland history. She channeled the gutsy wisecracking heroine she played on the silver screen as she told Lucky Luciano to go get stuffed. Another man with compelling interest in Thelma Todd's sidewalk cafe was Thelma's boyfriend, Roland West. West wanted Thelma at the restaurant, drawing customers in with her star power more than she wanted to be there. West called Thelma his money magnet with rough affection. He told her, you're my money maker. If you're not there, I'm not making money. On the night of December 14th, Thelma went to a gala Hollywood party thrown by her friend Stanley Lupino and his daughter, actress Ida Lupino. Unfortunately, one of the other guests at the party was Pat DeSico, Thelma's ex-husband. When he heard Thelma was going to be there, he apparently requested to be seated next to her at dinner. This, obviously, was not someone Thelma wanted to party with. Thelma threw back a few drinks, and she and DeSico argued. Thelma was also in the doghouse with her boyfriend, Roland West. The inner owner, Sid Grauman, called West as the evening wound down, saying that Thelma was headed home and was a bit under the influence. Grauman tactfully suggested that perhaps West might want to pour Thelma into bed when she got home. But Thelma never made it home. Sometime in the wee hours of Monday morning, December 16, 1935, Thelma Todd died in the garage of West's house. She was found by her maid, Mae Whitehead, slumped in the front seat of her Lincoln Phaeton. The official cause of Thelma's death was carbon monoxide poisoning resulting from sitting in an enclosed garage with the car's engine running. But this doesn't explain the injuries Thelma suffered immediately before her death. A split lip, a broken nose, several broken ribs, and bruises. Besides that, she'd been hit in the mouth hard enough to dislodge one of her dental fillings. She'd made an enemy, but who? Was it Roland West, who had locked her out of their apartment that chilly December night? Was it Pat DeSico, who had ties with the mob? Could it have been Lucky Luciano? According to one story, 
Luciano brought up the idea of putting in a gambling parlor on the third floor of Thelma's, of Thelma's building over dinner one night. Thelma snarled at him over my dead body. If the story is to be believed, Luciano melodramatically replied, that can be arranged. Whether Thelma's death was accident, suicide, or murder, it shocked the acting world. The sassy, beloved comedian, not yet 30 years old, was gone. On the morning Thelma's body was found, the day's mail delivery brought her Christmas card to Stan and Ruth Laurel's home. The trunk of Thelma's car was full of Christmas presents for her friends and family. On December 23, 1935, Thelma Todd was laid to rest at Forest Lawn Cemetery. Crowds gathered to pay their respects to the actress, who lay in a casket covered with mounds of yellow roses. Thelma was gone, but her spirit still wanders the hills of Hollywood. Her ghost has been seen near the restaurant that bore her name. <clears throat> Even in death, she is still glamorous, still dressed in the evening gown, mink coat, and jewels she wore to her last party. Sometimes she appears on the staircase of the building where she and Roland West lived, and in the garage where she was found dead. Witnesses have heard a car running. Oh, and in the garage where she was found dead, I'm sorry, witnesses have heard a car running and have smelled the sharp tang of gasoline. The garage hasn't been used to store cars in decades. Strange happening at Todd House, different spelling TOD. The oldest private home in Victoria, British Columbia, is a small bungalow on Heron Street. The wooden frame house was built in 1851 by John Todd, head trader for the Hudson Bay Company. John Todd was quite the frontier character. He immigrated from Scotland in 1813 to seek his fortune in New Caledonia, as that part of British Columbia was then known. He certainly made the most of freedom from the freedom the Canadian frontier offered. At one point, he ran afoul of the governor of the Hudson Bay Company and was banished to the remote outpost at Fort McLeod. He spent nine years there and used the time to become fluent in several Native American dialects. One anecdote in particular reveals Todd's rough-and-tumble, take-no-crap attitude. In 1847, he was chief trader at Fort, Can at Fort Canloops when Chief Nicola and his men showed up to attack the fort. Todd showed the chief a king of gunpowder and threatened to blow himself in the fort sky high if the Kamloop tribe didn't leave the fort in peace. The bluff worked, and Chief Nicola backed down. John Todd was married at least seven times. Four of those marriages were to native, were, were to native women. Apparently, his business acumen was not the only asset that was improved by his fluency in native dialects. Todd's multiple marriage, marriages produced ten children. Wanting to keep his growing family safe, Todd made his small home into a fortress. The home was built with defense in mind. The thick wooden front door still graces the house, complete with a bullet hole, said to be from an attack by rival traders from Cadborough Bay. There's also a tunnel that runs from the cellar to a spot some ways from the house, a bolt hole the family could use to escape in the event of an attack. Todd's colorful life ended in 1882, and the house was passed down to his heirs. Colonel and Mrs. T.C. Evans bought the house in 1944. What they didn't know was that their new home had already become the focus of supernatural attention. Mrs. E.C. Turner lived in the Todd house with her daughter from 1929 to 1944. She spoke of experiencing eerie feelings in a large upstairs bedroom. Neither she nor her daughter would sleep in that room. The cat, too, would growl and arch her back when she passed the room, as if she could see something Mrs. Turner couldn't. Colonel and Mrs. Evans don't, didn't believe in ghosts. Nonetheless, he couldn't deny that the house was extremely odd. The cellar door refused 
excuse me, refused to stay closed, even when it was locked. Hats from the hat stand would often be found tossed around the hallway, and Mrs. Evans' antique rocker would often rock by itself in the living room. The colonel did some research on the history of the house. The rumor he'd heard was that one of John Todd's native wives had gone insane and was kept chained in an upstairs bedroom. Colonel and Mrs. Evans regularly opened their home to servicemen during World War II. One night, two airmen spent the night at Todd House. The colonel and his wife, despite their skepticism, couldn't deny that the large bedroom on the upper floor gave them the creeps. So they turned it into the guest room and settled the two aviators in for the night. The next morning, Mrs. Evans found the room empty. The two men came back later that day, in the daylight, to explain their hurried departure. One man was quoted in an interview printed in the Vancouver Sun. Quote, We'd been asleep for several hours when I suddenly awoke. I can't really describe what woke me, although it sounded like the rattling of change. chains. Over in the corner stood an Indian woman. Her hands held out to me in such a manner that she seemed to be pleading with me to help her. On her arms and legs were what looked like fetters. She kept looking at me, her hands outstretched and saying something that I couldn't quite catch. As suddenly as she appeared, she was gone. I'll never forget the sight. The spirits of, of the Todd house seemed to be the most active during the holiday season. One morning, the Evanses awoke to find that the Christmas decorations had all been stripped from the walls of the tree, and that the Christmas cards had been swept from the mantle. Everything was all in a pile in the middle of the living room floor. The ghosts even showed up for a New Year's party. Mrs. Evans had hung a porcelain cookie jar from a hook near the fireplace. During the party, the cookie jar started to swing back and forth in full view of the astonished guests. The jar swung itself for nearly half an hour as the guests watched in amazement. After the New Year's Eve party, the Todd House became famous as a haunted location. The swinging cookie jar was such a sensation that word about the hauntings in the house got out. Reporters showed up to investigate, and curiosity seekers showed up to gawk. In early 1947, Colonel Evans began work on installing a new oil furnace. Workmen were digging a hole next to the front porch for oil storage tank. About seven feet down, they uncovered a human skeleton. The workmen refused to dig any further, so Colonel Evans excavated the bones himself. The skull was in good shape, but the bones had largely decomposed, and the, and, and the colonel figured that the body had been covered with quicklime at the time it was buried. A forensic specialist determined that the bones were those of a female, of either Asian or Native American descent and that the woman had been buried over 50 years earlier, making her date of death somewhere before 1897. John Todd died in 1882. Strangely enough, once the bones had been unearthed, the hauntings of the Todd house stopped. Professor Gladstone and the Murderer The small town of Beachy, Saskatchewan, didn't see much excitement during the year, but the evening of December 10, 1932, was a special occasion. That night, People were braving the wintry weather and flocking to the small movie theater in town. There were, they, there weren't coming to see Better Days, uh, Betty Davis. It's misspelled. They weren't coming to see Betty Davis or Gary Cooper or the antics of the Marx Brothers or the snide sarcasm of W.C. Fields. They were there to see a live performance by Professor Gladstone, mentalist, a real live mind reader, or so he claimed. The house lights dimmed and the audience settled in for an evening of exciting entertainment. They had no idea of how much drama would shortly come from that small stage. Professor Gladstone was tall, with a distinguished manner well-befitting a mind reader and a showman. He put on a memorable performance as he worked the show for nearly an hour, 
astounding the audience with his uncanny powers of mentalism. Unbeknownst to the audience, the show was about to get a lot more interesting. Gladstone stopped his dramatic pacing around the stage and went eerily still for a few long moments. The audience began to murmur their uncertainty. What was wrong? Then Gladstone snapped to attention and stared out over the audience. He locked eyes with a local rancher named Bill Taylor. Quote, at this moment, you're thinking of your friend Scotty McLaughlin, Gladstone intoned. As Taylor blinked in astonishment, the mind reader added, quote, Scotty McLaughlin was the victim of a foul brutal myrtle murder, end quote. A ripple of shock rustled through the theater. Three years before, McLaughlin had farmed in the area with a partner, John Schumacher. He'd had plans to sell his share of the farm to Schumacher and move to British Columbia. He had intended to take the night train out of town on January 16, 1930. His friends had shown up at the station to see him off and wish him luck, but McLaughlin had never arrived to catch his train. The police had been notified, but the investigation had long gone cold. Professor Gladstone wasn't finished making electrifying announcements. He pointed to another man in the audience and announced, quote, he will find the body and I myself will be with him when he does, end quote. It was another bombshell. The man Gladstone had pointed to was Constable Carey, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police Officer for the town. Constable Carey was, himself, shocked at Gladstone's revelations. The next morning, he called, RCMP headquarters in Saskatoon. He told Corporal Jack Woods about the previous night's astounding scene at the theater. Woods did a quick background check on Professor Gladstone and decided to reopen the case. Whether one believed in mind reading powers or not, Gladstone's act had reminded the community that one of their citizens had been missing for nearly three years. If nothing else, the police would do well to take advantage of the renewed interest in the situation. When Corporal Woods arrived, Constable Carey contacted Professor Gladstone and the three men men began to convey the canvas the town of Beachy and the outlying farming community. They spent the entire day talking to people, mostly getting a rehash of the same dead-end information that Carrie had heard in January of 1930. But they caught a break in the case late that afternoon. A farmer who was impressed by Gladstone's talents admitted that before McLaughlin had gone missing, John Schumacher had come to see him in a towering rage. The farmer had no idea why Schumacher was so worked up but he did say that Schumacher had threatened to kill the damn Scotsman. This new evidence was enough to send the policeman, with Gladstone in tow, out to Schumacher's farm that same night as the tires of the, uh, that night. As the tires of the car crunched on Schumacher's driveway, Gladstone insisted that McLaughlin's body was somewhere on the property. John Schumacher, however, stuck to the story he told when McLaughlin had gone missing. He kept his story simple. Scotty had wanted to leave for British Columbia, so he, Schumacher, had paid Scotty a few hundred dollars for his share of the land. He had never seen Scotty again and had no idea where he was now. The Mounties found Schumacher's story a little too pat and started asking more questions. Schumacher, sensing their suspicions, clammed up. Just as the police were about to give up in frustration, Professor Gladstone spoke. He painted a sordid picture of the crime. Scotty had indeed come to Schumacher seeking payment for his share of the farm, but Schumacher had started to fight. The two men had wandered, still arguing, close to the barn. The argument had turned violent. A blow fell, and another, and another. Schumacher had buried McLaughlin's body near the barn. John Schumacher's stubborn silence said more than a desperate denial ever could. The next morning, the police officers in Gladstone returned, and they brought a group of other men from the community. The men were all carrying picks and shovels. The group looked to Professor Gladstone for instructions. 
The mind reader concentrated fiercely for a few brief moments. Then he pointed to a frozen pile of manure. Dig there, you'll find him. Two hours later, the men's hands were beginning to go numb with the cold. John Schumacher stood nearby, <clears throat> still saying nothing. The group was still working, but they weren't digging with the same frenzy as when they started. Could, prof could the professor have, have been wrong this whole time? Suddenly, a shovel edge scraped against not hard frozen dirt, but something more yielding, a woolen sock. There was something in the ground. Soon, the diggers had unearthed an entire skeleton. Shreds of rotting cloth lay limply on the bones. The men fell silent. That scarf, it's, it's Scotty's, one man said in a six-strangled voice. The skull, when pried from the frozen grave and brushed off, showed three distinct fractures. John Schumacher broke down and admitted to the murder. He was convicted and sentenced, and justice was finally served. The case brought Professor Gladstone the kind of publicity money he just can't buy. His career flourished, and he continued to perform for many years. As good as he was, though, he never had another show as dramatic as the one he played in Beachy, Saskatchewan on December 10, 1932. The McKay Haunting Constant readers and other fans of the paranormal may remember the case of two English ladies who visited Versailles in 1904 and had the eerie experience of seeming to travel back in time to the era of the French Revolution. A Mr. William McKay had a similar experience in Ireland around 1852. McKay was out hunting waterfall with his dog sometime toward the beginning of December. It was a bitterly cold night, and the moon had already set. The young man had enjoyed his long day of sport and was just about to head for home when he heard the unfamiliar bark of a strange dog. Then he heard a musket shot. Then he heard a barrage of shots, which he could identify as attack and defense. McKay also, McKay, although he couldn't see the shooters, still didn't think the gunshots were anything of the paranormal nature. Then he noticed that his courageous hunting dog was crouching in a terrified huddle, trying to crawl between McKay's feet for protection. Faced with his dog's uncharacteristic behavior, McKay started to wonder what exactly was going on around him in the darkness of the marshes. Suddenly, a few hundred yards away from him, he saw a glow like a house fire. McKay knew the marshes well, and he knew that not only was there a house in that not only wasn't there a house in that direction, there really wasn't anything that combustible. And yet. Pieces of burning roof thatch and timber sparks were falling in, into the water at his feet with tiny hisses as they extinguished themselves. And still the gunshots continued. They seemed to lessen a bit as the glow of the fire rose. Then the clear note of a bugle sounded, piercing the cool night air. The gunfire stopped, and McKay heard the clop and jingle of a cavalry squad trotting towards the scene of the fire. McKay stood still for what seemed like an eternity. Finally, the sound of horses going at a walk as they left the scene faded into the distance. The phantom glow of the fire had appeared along the path McKay normally would have taken to get home, but he was so terrified that he skirted that area of the marsh and took a longer way home. At breakfast the next morning, the young McKay caught Mary Hell from his father for staying out so late. McKay thought quickly and came up with a plausible excuse, or so he thought. He explained that while out hunting, he had fallen asleep for a while. He spun the weirdness he'd seen and heard the barking dog, the gunshots, first the one, and then the barrage of gunfire, the glow of the fire, the bits of burning thatch and chunks of glowing timber, the horses running, then running away into a dream. McKay's father gave a knowing snort when his son had finished spinning the white lie. Quote, if that's the case, boyo, you were dreaming with your eyes open. Unquote. 
The father went on to explain that young McKay was not the only person ever to witness the strange series of events. Then the father told his son a family story that had taken place over 150 years ago. Near the end of the 17th century, a widow named Sally McKay lived with her three sons on the outer edge of the small McKay settlement. The sons had somehow run, somehow run afoul of the authorities, and all three were accused of high treason. A warrant was issued for their arrest and delivered to the officer in command of the infantry regiment stationed in the nearby town of Lifford. High treason was a serious offense, so a company of troops was gathered immediately and set off at 11 p.m. There was a simple narrow bridle path that led from the main road to the McKay's cottage, so the military could only approach in single file. The company arrived at the cottage at midnight and made their way up the narrow path. So quietly did the troops move that the first inkling Sally and her sons had that something was amiss was that their collie dogs started barking. There was a single gunshot and a yelp, then silence. Someone had shot their dog. Sally and her sons raced to the windows. In one glance, they took in the sight of the dead guard dog and the soldiers fanning out to encircle the cottage. Sally grabbed a musket from the stack they kept handy and started to shoot, handing the guns off to her sons to reload when she ran dry. Several soldiers dropped to the ground, either wounded or killed. Sally McKay was a good shot. No one ever found out if the fire that destroyed the cottage started by accident or was deliberately set. As the fire grew, looking at the timber walls and devouring the fast roof, Sally stopped shooting, overcome by the smoke and flames. She heaved the door open, gasping for fresh air, then collapsed, still inside the burning cottage. The officer in command rushed in, braving smoke and falling, burning timbers, and scooped Sally up. He carried her a safe distance from the inferno. Sally was wounded and burned. All three of her sons were dead, but the soldiers, sent to arrest them, had gotten the worst of the fight. Many of them were killed and, wo killed and wounded. The sentries in Lifford heard the exchange of gunfire. They sent out a cavalry troop to see what was going on out to the marshes. The troop got there just in time to see the infantry officer drag Sally from the burning cottage. The cavalry milled around for a while, <clears throat> then left as the action was over. Sally McKay was not fatally wounded in the gunfight or the fire. Although she'd lost all three of her sons in her home, she was down but not out. She made a full recovery and lived for many years afterwards. She survived to a good old age and delighted in telling people about the firefight in which she had held off a troop of government soldiers. The Doug Hill Booger. That's right, B-O-O-G-E-R. Every state in the Union laid claim to its own treasure trove of ghost stories, but Illinois seems to have more than its share of terrifying tales. Of course, you can't swing a dead cat in Chicago and the suburbs without smacking a ghost. But the southern tip of Illinois, the area known as Little Egypt, is also rich in ghost lore. In contrast to the urban bustle of Chicago and the suburbs in the northern part of the state, southern Illinois is quiet, some would almost say comatose. Southern Illinois is a region that has more in common with its Kentucky and Tennessee neighbors to the south than its big sister Chicago in the north. Southern Illinois is a place of mystery and tall tales. Take Doug Hill, for example. This is a spot about five miles west of Jonesboro on State Highway 126. The road here was cut through the bedrock of this part of the state to make an easier passage from the Mississippi River to the interior of Southern Illinois. Doug Hill Road is a secluded spot, dark and spooky. It's not quite so terrifying nowadays, in the area of Netflix and McDonald's and Facebook. But this area, this area was once considered one of the most dangerous and most haunted places in southern Illinois. 
Reports of ambush, robbery, and violence were common. But there was a supernatural element to Doug Hill's reputation as well. Legend says that it was haunted because of an incident that took place during the waning days of the Civil War. In April 1865, a provost marshal named Welch was working in the area. One day he arrested three deserters from the Union Army and turned them into the authorities in Jonesboro. He was doing his duty, but word came a few days later that General Lee had surrendered at Appomattox Courthouse in Virginia. The war had ended, so the deserters were released. But the men were still seething over being arrested. They wanted revenge on Provost Marshal Welch. Late that night, Welch was riding home, passing through Doug Hill on his way. The deserters had set up an ambush along the road cut. They shot Welch down in cold blood and left his body lying in the road. Even though the body was discovered after only a short time, no one was ever arrested for the murder. Perhaps because the murders were punished by any earthly court, Welch's ghost soon began to appear on the Doug Hill Road, searching for its brand of justice. Some people saw the ghost walking along the road, dressed in bloody clothes, begging for help from passing wagon drivers. Most often, though, the ghost just approached as a figure lying the ghost was just approached as a figure lying in the middle of the road where Welch's earthly body had fallen. Troy Taylor writes of the Doug Hill ghost in his book, The Big Book of Illinois Ghost Stories. <laughs> Quote, According to one account, a wagon driver was passing along Doug Hill Road one evening when he saw the body of a man lying face down in the center of the road. He stopped his horses and climbed down to see if he could help. When he leaned down to try and turn the man over, his hands passed right through him. The teamster tried again to lift the body, and again he only touched the dirt beneath it. Terrified, he ran back to his wagon. Cracking the whip, he drove the wagon forward and felt the distinct thump of the wheels passing over the spectral corpse. He looked back once and saw that the body had vanished. End quote. The unfortunate Welch was not the only spook that lurked on Dunk Hill. A spectral wagon also terrorized that stretch of road. One night in late December, a farmer named Bill Smith was driving along the road after dark. The ground was frozen hard, and the muddy ruts were chunks of iron in the path. Any wagon driven at speed, at a speed faster than a horse could walk, would rattle and shake as it jounced over the frozen ground. The bouncing of Smith's wagon worked the yoke loose on his horse's shoulders, so he had to stop to tighten it. Smith brought the wagon to a stop and climbed down from his seat to replace the horse's yoke. He blew on his cold fingers as he worked the stiff leather. He heard the rumble of another wagon approaching, and it was coming fast, much too fast on a dark road with woods on both sides. There was little room on the narrow trail to pass. Smith knew that if he couldn't get out of the other driver's way, or at least warn him that he was stopped in the middle of the road, they'd both end up killed. Smith shouted a warning into the darkness as loud as he could. But the thunder, of the, runway, uh, the thunder of the runaway wagon filled the air, and it seemed impossible that the other driver could even hear him. Smith suddenly realized that the unearthly racket was much closer to him, filling his ears with the pounding of horses' hooves and the clatter of a wooden wagon about to shake itself to splinters. Smith saw a pair of huge black horses snorting foam as they thundered along the road, pulling a wagon with his sideboards, rattling with the stress of the ride. The driver sat on the box, cracking the whip and urging the horses on with slaps of the reins, but Smith couldn't see his face in the darkness. The wagon crested the hill, heading straight for Smith, and then it kept arcing up on that trajectory, sailing right into the air above Smith's head. The horses were running and the wheels were turning, as if the wagon was traveling on solid ground rather than thin air. 
The wagon gained the road again at the crest of the next hill. It had barreled over the dip in the road as if it was flat ground. Smith rose from where he crouched in terror and soothed his panicked horse. He stared down the road as he thumped the horse's shoulder in stunned amazement. He couldn't see the phantom wagon anymore, but he could still hear it, and the monstrous thing was two miles away at that point. Smith decided it would be a long, long time before he traveled Doug Hill Road after dark again. The Old Royal Ascot Hotel It's unfortunate, but sometimes beautiful old buildings are demolished in the name of progress. Such was the case with the Old Royal Ascot Hotel in England. The hotel stood near the racetrack in Berkshire, west of London. Guests of the high-class establishment were treated with white-glove respect. The livery service from the train station to the hotel was an immaculate coach and pair. Gentlemen in stylish coach and ladies in dresses and hats in the very latest fashion poured over raceless in the elegant hotel lobby or enjoyed delicacies in the dining room. But all good things come to an end, and the old Royal Ascot Hotel was put up for auction in the spring of 1964. By the end of the year, the once grand hotel was slated for destruction. Demolition men moved into the building to prepare prepare it for its date with the wrecking ball. The workers arranged temporary sleeping quarters in some of the 40 rooms of the hotel. But they hadn't been there long when some of the men began to mutter about strange goings-on in the aging building. Shortly after Christmas, the old night watchman quit in a hurry. He walked off the job one night without even stopping to collect the two or three days' pay owed him. When his supervisor finally got in contact with him, the old man swore he'd heard ghostly footsteps in the hotel's hallways, but that wasn't why he left so abruptly. It was the sight of a ghostly horse whinnying and stamping late at night in one of the hotel room doorways that proved to be too much for his nerves. After that, after the night, after the night watchman walked off the job, other workmen began to come forward with their own experiences. According to witnesses, the phantom horse was ghostly pale, either white or gray. The men spoke of hearing the spectral horse stomping and stamping and snoring in the empty corridors of the derelict hotel. One worker, Thomas Murphy, claimed he'd seen the phantom horse standing under an arch in the hotel. Another man, Pat Bradshaw, had taken over the night watchman's job. He heard the eerie snorts of an invisible horse, which he said made his hair stand on end. Eventually, only six men of the crew were left that were willing to sleep in the hotel. The others were just too spooked. It wasn't only the ghost horse that had the men leaving in droves. One night, as the men came back to the hotel after a day's work, they found themselves unable to open the door, a door which had been left open only minutes before. Older residents had a theory for the ghost horse's origin. When the old Royal Ascot Hotel was being built, horses were used to drag sledges loaded with bricks from the kilns to the building site. One of the horses had collapsed from overwork, and sadly, it had to be put down. Maybe, the old-timers theorized, after working so hard to help put up the hotel, the horse had returned to haunt the men, who were now pulling it down. The Aircraft Carrier Glory A few days after Christmas, 1955, a Mr. Harry Meyerthal was working as a painter at Roseth Dockyard in Fife, Scotland. Early that morning, he showed up to work on the Aircraft Carrier Glory, which was in the dockyard for renovation. Meyerthal had an early breakfast in the dining hall, then went aboard the ship. He kept his work clothes in cabin eight on the galley deck, so that was where he headed first. Outside the cabin was a locker where he kept the lamp needed for work. 
This was a double lamp that could light both the cabin and the corridor, so it had a thick electrical cord attached to it. Meyerthal opened the door to cabin 8 and stepped inside to plug in the cable. When Meyerthal slipped on the light, he saw a man standing near the door of the cabin by the dressing table. The man was quite tall, about 5 feet 9 inches, and he was dressed in flying gear suitable for tropic conditions, blue shorts, and a leather flying jacket with a fur collar. The jacket was hanging open. On the right-hand side of the jacket, a row of small bombs was painted in red, and a pair of pilot's wings were pinned to the left side. <coughs> the left-hand side. The man wore a flying helmet pushed up on the back of his head, with a shock of blonde hair sticking out from under the front of the helmet. On the right side of the man's neck was a long red puckered scarf. Myrthal stared at the man for a moment before realizing he was probably one of the maintenance staff, part of a skeleton crew stationed aboard the carrier, while it was docked for repairs. Myrthal said, Good morning. Did you enjoy your Christmas? But the man made no reply to the cheerful greeting. Myrthal shrugged and stepped out of the cabin to get, a to get a leather jacket from his work locker. Suddenly, he stopped, frowning. What was the man doing in cabin A, dressed in full flight gear, so early in the morning? He poked his head back into the cabin to ask the aviator who he was. The room was empty. Myrthal grabbed the double lamp and flooded the cabin with light. There was only a bunk bed, the dressing table, and a small locker, which was closed. There was no sign of the aviator. Myrthal dropped the lamp and tore down the hallway, shrieking. A workmate stopped him in his headlong flight down the stairs. He called Myrthal down, and together they went back to investigate the cabin. They found no one in the room. When the naval commander came aboard, both men told him about the strange apparition. The officer, too, searched the cabin in the corridor. He found no sign of the flyer with the scarred neck. This was just too much for Myrthal. He slipped into a chair in a state of shock and had to be escorted off the ship. Rumors spread, and soon the story was making the rounds of the dockyard. Workmen said the Phantom was the ghost of an officer who was killed in a crash landing on the deck of the Glory after returning from a flight over Korea, shortly before Christmas, during the Korean War. The spectral airman had appeared before the stories insisted. Had appeared before the stories insisted. The ghost always showed up in Cabin 8, his old quarters, just after Christmas. There was, however, a flaw in the spooky story. It's true that 25 of the men serving aboard the Glory had lost their lives in combat but none of them had died as a result of crash landing on the aircraft carrier's deck. Furthermore, no RAF officer had ever served on that particular ship, so the identity of the scarred ghost of the glory was a complete mystery, and so it remains. Number 149 Squadron Late 1939, in the early days of the air war in World War II, was a time of uncertainty for the Royal Air Force. The German Luftwaffe was strong and aggressive, striking fear into the hearts of civilians on the ground and causing tension in the ranks of the RAF. The RAF, the RAF hadn't yet built up its strength in either pilots or aircraft. Much of the air fighting in 1939 consisted of attacks of limited strength and effectiveness as the RAF tested itself against the Luftwaffe. Those feints and jabs were still lethal. Many planes were lost, and many pilots died as the RAF struggled to find its footing in the skies. One of the main forces of the time of the time operated out of Mildenhall Base in Suffolk, England. Pilots of number 149 squadron flew, Vi flew Vickers Wellington bombers. Unfortunately, Wellingtons were huge, bulky monsters without much firepower. The British 
were still sending their bombers out in daylight, and the German fire planes were tearing them apart. There were very few British fighters available to provide an escort for the vulnerable bombers. Radio silence was of paramount importance, so when the bombers left, the ground crew at, at Mildenhall had nothing to do but wait until the planes returned or failed to return. The missions were timed so that the Wellingtons took off in daylight, made their bombing runs, then ran for home as darkness fell. On December 18, 1939, coming up on the shortest day of the year, there wasn't much daylight to work with. To guide the bombers to safety, the ground crews lined the runway with cans of paraffin placed in parallel lines, giving the pilots a place to aim. When the bomber was close enough to begin its descent, the ground crews lit a chance light which eliminated the runway with a bright yellow beam. Nine Vikers Wellingtons had taken off from Mildenhall earlier that day. Two of them developed mechanical failures and limped home without having had a chance to drop their payload. The seven bombers still out were flying in wretched conditions. There was heavy cloud cover, snow had begun to fall, and the temperature dropped to well below freezing. One plane straggled in just, just past 5 p.m., followed by two more. That left four bombers unaccounted for in the growing winter darkness. The snow came down more heavily as the clock ticked. The late afternoon gloom faded to full night. The bombers were now more than an hour overdue. The ground crews set up the paraffin flares and the chance light, even though they had the sinking feeling the planes were all down. The men watched nervously, stamping, booted feet, and blowing on cold fingers. Half an hour passed. Then an officer lifted his head, listening hard. A sound was approaching in the hush of the falling snow. The other men perked up. A plane was definitely on its way to Mildenhall. But something was very wrong. Instead of the smooth drone of a Viker's two, Viker's two powerful engines, they heard a choppy, choking cough. The bomber was in serious distress. The mechanics on the ground were, were men who knew their engines. They could tell immediately that the plane struggling towards them wasn't a Wellington. Light the flares, the ops officer shouted. Pale light flickered down the runway from the paraffin flares, and the chance light added its yellow glow. The men on the ground stood frozen in their tracks, their eyes wide with stunned disbelief. The plane coming towards them, lit by the weak glow of the flares, was an ancient, fragile contraption. Frayed, fabric flapped, taut wires hummed in the cold wind, and two rotted bicycle tires spun on the plane's undercarriage. Tattered canvas surrounded the open cockpit, of an FE-2 from the early days of World War I. The stunned ground crew stared at the pilot. In the glow of the lights, they could clearly see the scarf, goggles, and helmet of a World War I flying ace. The pilot thrust a gloved hand over the side of the cockpit and dropped something. An object plinked on the tarmac, rolled a few times, and was still. Then the pilot pushed the ancient relic to full power and buzzed out of range of the runway lights. An airman ran over to the object the pilot had dropped and picked it up turning it over in his hands. It was a wrench, with a piece of paper wrapped around it. The mechanic unwrapped the paper, and the men crowded around to read the handwriting. Wellington Aircraft N2961 was down, not shot down over the continent, where the crew would have had a chance to escape or be taken prisoner. The pilot had coaxed the Vikers bomber as far as he could, trying to get back to, Mid to, to Mildenhall, but the Valiant plane <clears throat> had lost its struggle over water. The bomber had gone down in the sea, 40 miles from the nearest air-sea rescue outfit. The plane and everyone on board was lost. So why did a relic of a bygone age appear in the skies over Mildenhall to deliver the tragic news? In the Second World War, 
Number 149 Squadron flew Vikers Wellingtons out of Mildenhall. In a generation before, British pilots pioneered the air war, flying from airfields in France. Number 149 Squadron, flying in the First World War, flew FE-2 biplanes. Okay, guys, that's it for tonight. We're going to continue this on Sunday. Uh, like I said, we had 160 pages to go, so we're narrowing that down. So it's going to be the next couple weekends that we're going to be doing this. Um, you know, because of my health issues this week, I didn't book guests. It's you know, so um, so we're going to start booking a lot of guests coming in again. We're going to start flowing with that. In fact, tomorrow, tomorrow Nancy Mass is with us. And we're going to be talking about, let me see, let's see, what ah, again. And we're going to be talking about the lives of ghosts with Nancy Matz tomorrow. So she'll be live, and then we'll start with live guests starting Monday again. So it's going to start getting, you know, we're going to start doing that. But uh, in the meantime, we'll have these things to read on Sunday. And like I said, <clears throat> out of that Gutenberg collection, where I'm going to be pulling even more stuff to read. So it's going to be interesting. Also tomorrow, after I do the show tomorrow, we will be in the big studio, and we're and I'm going to be building something, whether it's with uh, the light bright I got, or whether it's with Legos, or maybe it's gingerbread men or whatever. We are going to be building something. I didn't go downtown tonight to the event because I have, like I said, I had I have some health problems going on, and last night really wasn't a good night for me. So I wanted to have one night to kind of get used to my meds and all that. So. That was tonight, and tomorrow we can't go. So we will definitely be down there on Saturday to cover that live event of the Theater of Lights. Finally get in there. But I want to thank everybody for coming tonight, and I know it's late, and I really appreciate each and every one of you. And, uh, yeah, I'll see you tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. Pacific with medium Nancy Mass. So have a great evening, and get some rest. Bye.